Okay, and uh, here we go. So today you can see that we are going to be participating in the Lord's table and that you are welcome to join us. You know, there are churches who practice what they call closed communion. And what that means is, is if you're not a member of this church, you're not invited. But we don't practice that. We practice what's called open communion. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you are most welcome to celebrate the Lord's table. And we want to invite you to do so. It doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, you're welcome to participate. When we talk about the Lord's table, and that is what the message is going to be about a little bit obliquely this morning, uh, we're talking about uh, something that was dear to the heart of the Apostle Paul. And he dealt extensively with that uh, issue and that topic with the church in Corinth. And as we all know, they were a somewhat problematic church. They had their problems. They had their issues. And we know about those. But in order to get the full picture of what communion is about, we can back up and cover a few chapters. I'm not going to cover them in detail, uh, so don't worry about that. By the way, I cut it down from eight pages last week. It's only five this week, so hopefully we'll get done in a decent time. So we're going to begin with first chapter 8. So I want us to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and this is where we're going to start. And it's important then to look then at the larger context of what the Apostle Paul was dealing with in the church at Corinth. And of course, when you understand that Paul, being from Israel, was you know, fully cognizant and knowledgeable about the God of Israel, Yahweh. When it came time to take the gospel to the nations of the world, he knew, as all the other apostles knew, that they would be encountering things that were... You know, hopefully not going to be encountered in the nation of Israel. Now, centuries before that, they had had to deal with idolatry. God put them in exile, northern kingdom and southern kingdom both, for their crime. God brought them back. And others have pointed out, and if you, when you read the scriptures, you'll notice that that was the last time Israel's had an issue with idolatry. They've never been victimized by idolatry since the exile. But going to Corinth, as you would expect, that's exactly what happened. Idolatry was front and center. And so the church in Corinth had, you know, it was just a part of daily culture. It was there. There were idol temples all over the city. Sacrifices were being made on a constant basis to their gods. And so here comes Paul presenting the gospel to the Corinthians, and many of them believe. And of course, when they assembled together in church, and they came together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, then there was an issue that arose about meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Now in chapter eight, in the first four verses, 
Paul starts off then talking to the Corinthians about meat that had been offered to idols. Now, really, he just, in a, in a certain sense, he sums it up by saying, it's not a big deal. Food offered to idols is nothing because idols are nothing. And he tells them there in uh, verses five and six, he says, you know, there may be other so-called gods, but we know that there's but one God. Whether in heaven, he says, or on earth, because he says, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for us, there's only one, whom, of whom are all things, and catch where Paul's going, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we live. So Paul, relating to the Corinthian believers, made this recognition that, hey, we acknowledge there's one God, one Lord Jesus Christ. Everything came about from God and through the Lord Jesus. But he said everyone doesn't have that knowledge. And so, because with, uh, he says, with consciousness of the idol, in verse 7, until now, or I think the King James to this says, to this very hour, he says, they eat it as a thing sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Now, the point of it here is dealing with the idea of defining your conscience. And because of their close association with the idea of meat that had been sacrificed to an idol and then they would eat it it would bother them because they knew that there was only one true god and to do such a thing and paul is trying to reassure them look idols are nothing it's they're meaningless he says in verse 8 and you need to look at that food does not commend us to god for neither if we eat are we the better nor if we don't eat, are we the worse? Doesn't help either way. Food doesn't matter. It's, it's not food that makes the difference in drawing you near to God or keeping you away. So he says, but beware somehow, lest this liberty or this freedom of yours become a stumbling block to those who are weak. So the whole point here is watching out for the other man watching out for that other person. Though you may have this knowledge, they may not. And so you don't want to defile them. You don't want them to cause them in verse 11 to perish because of your knowledge and so on. And so then he goes on down to verse 13. Paul says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. It just wasn't an issue with Paul here in this context. It didn't bother him. Now he goes on in chapter 9 to this extended discussion about his, his uh, ministry as an apostle and how though he had authority as an apostle to do certain things, he willingly and voluntarily gave up those rights so that he might have a more effective ministry. He wasn't, in other words, going to push his rights and say, you know, well, he tells you down here in verse four, chapter nine, he says, don't we have a right to eat and drink? And don't we have a right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles? 
the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and me that uh, don't have a right to do these things? In other words, the implication is very clear. The other apostles were doing these things and practicing them. I choose not to so that I might continue or have a more effective ministry amongst you Corinthians. Now, matter of fact, he even asked in verse 7, who goes to war at his own expense? How many soldiers go out and pay their own way? Well, they don't. And that's Paul's point. He says, I have, as we're going to find out here, he says, in essence, I have a right to earn a living by the gospel. That's what he's telling. I mean, he, when he talks about the ox muzzling out the grain, uh, you don't muzzle him, you let him eat. So he goes on down to verse 12, and I want you to take a good look at that one. He says, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but endure all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, verse 13, he says, do you not know that those who minister the holy things, that is, in the temple, eat of the things of the temple, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Paul's simply reminding them that in, in the uh, Jewish economy, when the priests ministered at the altar, they were allowed to eat certain offerings. Not all of them. As a matter of fact, one they didn't eat was the sin offering. But of the others, they could have a portion. There was a portion for the offerer, there was a portion for the Lord, and there was a portion for the priest who ministered at the altar. And Paul's making the point that this was how they were paid. They were allowed to earn. And so then he goes on to say there, and then uh, in verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. So he makes this correlation, this analogy between the two. I'm a minister of the gospel, Paul says. I have a right to live and earn my keep from preaching the gospel, but I choose not to amongst you Corinthians. Now, I don't know that Paul did that everywhere he went, but he's, he did work with his own hands. He was a tent maker. There were times and occasions when he refrained from being paid. Now, he says in verse 15, I have used none of these things. And he goes on then. He continues on uh, to say that, you know, the whole issue of preaching the gospel, he doesn't want to be, as we find out at the end of the chapter, disqualified. He doesn't want to be a castaway. He doesn't want to be disapproved when he comes before the Lord. And he reminds them, look, we are all in a race. I'm in the same race you are, Corinthians. And I want to run to win that prize, just like you need to be running, he says to win that prize. So he tells them, consequently, in verse 27 of chapter 9, he says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, 
So you see what Paul's whole discussion here in this chapter has been about preaching the gospel to others and what the consequences of that could turn out to be. And he said, I don't want to be disqualified or disapproved. So I keep under my body and I discipline it so that I might run the race effectively and therefore gain the prize. Now you say, well, I think we've lost that whole idea about idols here. Well, just hang on. Because he continues on. He goes on in chapter 10 then to talk about those from Egypt who were delivered, brought out of Egypt, out into the wilderness, who murmured and complained. And they, because of their rebellion and their disobedience, God made them stay in the wilderness for 40 long years until they all died off. And they never did enter the promised land. You see, they were the disapproved ones. They never gained the promise. They didn't finish their race. Grumbling and complaining about what they had to go through in life. Now, the good thing about it is, in verse 13, that verse that I suppose all of us know so well, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear. And of course, the implication is those in the wilderness could have done the same thing. God didn't make provision for them. They just did not avail themselves of it. Now watch what he says then. Watch what he says in verse 14. In view of all of that, therefore, he says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Disassociate yourself from any connection with it. I speak as, now it sounds like Paul's going against what he said back in chapter 8. Now he's telling them to flee from it, get away from it. But he's going somewhere. He said, now watch, starting in verse 16 then. The cup of blessing, he says, which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now the word communion there is the word koinonia. It's our familiar word for fellowship. Do we not fellowship in the bread and the cup? And in doing so, fellowshipping with Christ, as the bread and in his blood. For he says in verse 17, though we are many, we are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So he's just looking out across the crowd. We're many. But if you take that unleavened bread, we would call it a cracker, because it's not like a loaf of bread. It's more like a cracker. And you all break a piece off. You partake of one bread. And I think the implication is they all drank from one cup. Now we have a little bit of a, a, a repulsion against such a thing in our culture. 
and nowadays rightly so for sure so we don't do such a thing and we got the the bread's already broken up here pieces for you so the illustration is what we're trying to get across here that we all partake of one though we be many now he goes on to say that verse 18 observe Israel after the flesh what he's talking about there is go back and think about Israel he's telling the Corinthians you know they just put your mind across the Mediterranean there over to Israel and what's going on over there in Jerusalem over there in that temple he says are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar now the word partakers there uh, is our same word we saw back up here communion are they not in communion with the altar? And Paul's trying to tell them that when the priest partook or ate of his portion of that sacrifice, that he was in fellowship with everything that was going on at that altar. He was heart and soul with it, in other words. He was in solidarity, as it were. <clears throat> with what was going on there at the altar. So he's going to present his argument then in verse 19, what am I saying then? That an idol is anything or what is offered to idols is anything? No, not really. But rather this in verse 20, that the things which, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. So if you partook of food, meat that had been offered to an idol, then you're having fellowship with that demon. You may not have been there at the altar, but it was the eating that brought about the fellowship. It was eating that brought solidarity as it were, or for whatever kind of a word you can think of that, that pulled you into a relationship of what was taking place in that sacrifice. So Paul's just saying what takes place in a pagan temple when they offer a sacrifice to, to their, their God, which is really a demon, he says, and then you eat of that meat, you've had fellowship with that demon. And Paul says, I don't want you to do that. I would obviously want you to drink of the cup of blessing that he mentioned earlier so that you have fellowship with God. Now, why is all that important? Well, I'm going to tell you right there in verse 21. Um, he says, you cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. And then what happens if you do? Well, the next verse tells you. You provoke the Lord to jealousy. And that's not a good thing. As we're going to find out when we come to chapter 11. Not a good thing. Provoking the Lord to jealousy. He is a, you know, he tells us himself he's a jealous God. To share in the fellowship with another god, quote, demon, incurs his wrath and his anger and his displeasure with how we treat him 
Now he goes on to say, and, and here comes his point again, beginning in verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. He goes on to say, all things are lawful for me, but not all things edify or build up. Watch what he says then in, in, in verse 25. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake. For, and then he gives this quotation from the Psalms, the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. What is he pointing out to us? That God owns the earth. He made everything. There isn't anything here that he didn't make. So why do we give credence to a demon? Why do we give credence to a false god? Why would we want to participate in the fellowship of their sacrifice by consciously eating food that had been sacrificed to an idol? But notice in verse 25, then he says, but if it's sold in the marketplace, you don't have to worry about it. Why is that? Well, because if I go to the marketplace and I come over here and I buy my meat, then I'm not participating in the ritual. So I'm free. I can eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol because this is not a part of the ritual. Over here, if you knowingly purchase meat, or he comes along later and says, if anybody says to you, hey, that meat you bought right there, that was sacrificed to an idol. You know what Paul says then? Don't eat it. Now he says, under any other circumstances, you could have eaten it. No big deal. He says, for the sake of the conscience of the one that told you, don't eat it. So what's the point again? You're looking out for the other guy. Paul's acknowledging the freedom that we have in Christ and the fact that God owns it all. Being sacrificed to an idol is not a big deal. But if it's a factor that affects your conscience, then it is. Now, why is all that important to us here then? Well, it'll, it'll come up here then. So we come down to chapter 11 or well-known chapter dealing with the, the Lord's table. And again, Paul's dealing with some issues and problems that they were having in Corinth. And, uh, oh, they did have their troubles though. <laughs> so here we go. Notice from the beginning, Paul says uh, over in verse 17, where he begins dealing with the instructions concerning the Lord's table, he says, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Well, right from the beginning, we know trouble on the horizon. Something's not right here in Corinth. When the church was coming together, there was a problem. What is it? Well, he says, you don't come together for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. Now that's a problem. No matter what level you're talking about, if there are divisions in the Lord's body, when God's people are assembled together, that's a problem. 
And Paul's warning them against this. Now, he goes on to explain exactly what it is. He tells them in verse 19, there must be also factions among you that those who are approved, some translate that those who are genuine, the real believers, the faithful, loyal ones, may be recognized among you. Therefore, in verse 20, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's table. Now notice the disqualification. If the, this condition exists, then you are not really eating the Lord's table. And consequently, you are not really having communion with the Lord. So in verse 21, he says, <laughs> to me, this is crazy, but I'll explain something to you a little later. He says, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. Now, here we go. They're having a felt, and by the way, we all, we've already talked about this, you know, that in the early church, they held a fellowship meal or a love feast, as it was called then in conjunction with or in association with the Lord's table. And the problem that was taking place here is, I guess you could look at it a couple of ways. Um, one is people couldn't wait to eat. And they were either bringing their own meal and went ahead to eat without waiting for the others. But I think the more likely thing here that Paul's getting at and the context is, is that it was a, what we would call more like a potluck supper. In other words, everybody brought their food in, everybody was to partake and have a portion. But some folks, we would call them line jumpers, I guess. They were first in line and they were taking more food than was necessary. So the folks at the end of the line didn't get anything. And not only that, they were having wine with their meal because you don't get drunk on grape juice. And I'm not gonna make a, a proposal that we start drinking wine, so you're okay. That wouldn't bother me at all. But I know some here it would really bother you greatly. And so others were being left out. And so he, he chastises them in verse 22. <laughs> what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? Now notice he says it again. I do not praise you. Now this is, this, this is why I said this is an amazing thing to me. Of all the things that I could think of that God would get and Paul would get upset over at a fellowship meal is people who get in there and get too much food. They don't leave anything. You know, somebody brought in some KFC. Well, honey, get that two chicken breasts over there. Because that's all there is. He's talking about selfishness. He's talking about those who are looking out for themselves. I don't know about you, but I mean, I just, I'm thinking, come on. 
I would have thought, man, there's some debauchery going on or some crazy wild orgies or something God's upset with here. No. It's people just not being considerate or kind. They're not looking out for the other person. That's all he's upset about. Now he goes on in verse 23 to tell them the order in which they are to proceed with the communion meal, the fellowship meal, this meal in which you commune or have fellowship with the Lord. You see, there was a meal designed, a love feast, where you might commune or have fellowship with each other. That was a time to sit around the table and cut up, laugh, have a good time, enjoy the good food. When it came time for the Lord's table, then it was a different story. Now you're in fellowship with the Lord. You're to commune with Him when you take the bread and you take the cup. And by the way, the commandment He gives here is do this in remembrance of me. That's the reason why we do it. That is the reason He gave. And by the way, you know, only one gospel mentions that. Do this in remembrance of me? I was surprised. I just discovered that. It's Luke's gospel. The others don't even mention that. John doesn't even mention the Lord's table at all. I mean, it has this oblique real reference to it. And he just jumps right over it. And so in this meal, this fellowship meal, it is for remembrance of me, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul then, you can tell, is going from here all the way back to the Last Supper. And they did exactly the same thing. And I don't have time, but I did write them down. If you go back and look those passages up, you will find that they had a supper. And then the Lord Jesus broke the bread and he gave them a cup. And he said, take, eat drink this cup, and so on. And they partook of that after the supper was over. So there was a fellowship meal, a love feast, in conjunction with the Lord's table. The love feast was for fellowship and communion with each other. The Lord's table was for fellowship and communion with God in heaven in remembrance of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you would think that would be the end of it, but it's not. He goes on. He says then, um, in verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Now, what world is he talking about there? Well, traditionally, and I say tradition because it's to me it's nothing but an import of tradition into the communion supper. We would say, well, unworthy means, well, you've, you've, you've got to make sure you have a little quiet time so everybody can confess their sins before they eat that bread and before they drink that cup. And there's probably an element of truth to that, and obviously nothing wrong with it. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about people that jump into the line and eat too much food, and he's really upset about that. That's not the way you handle the whole, can I say, service, the whole communion service of fellowshipping with one another and then eating 
and drinking and abusing themselves because of their overindulgence and then you're going to turn around and you're going to have communion and fellowship with God Paul's saying that doesn't work that way you're eating and drinking in an unworthy manner and so he goes on to tell them let a man examine himself and then so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup the issue again is it's about others looking out for the other person now he goes on then uh, and talk about, you know, he in verse 29, if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, notice what the outcome of that, this simple little thing is. You eat and drink judgment to yourself. Does it matter? And not you're, you're not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. How can you imagine that? I just sit here blown away by the whole idea that, that because I disabused myself by overindulging, by not looking out for the needs of others, leaving them go hungry, or if I was in a first century church getting drunk, we don't have to worry about that one. This brought about weakness, and sickness and even death because many sleep but then he goes on the antidote to that in verse 31 if we would judge ourselves we would not be judged but when we are judged we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world so his conclusion therefore my brethren when you come together to eat what does he say? Wait for one another. How much plainer does Paul have to make? That the context of the problem in Corinth with the Lord's table is people weren't waiting on each other. They weren't looking out for the other guy. They were just taking care of themselves. And Paul's injunction to them is, if you think you can do that and then turn around and partake of the Lord's table and try to have communion with God, you're sadly mistaken. All you're doing is incurring judgment on yourself when you do that. And so then he says, if anybody's hungry, let him eat at home lest you come together for judgment. That's a simple antidote. If you're that hungry, just eat at home before you come. You may remember from last week as we were talking about Psalm 82 and God's judgment of his heavenly counsel. You remember again, to me, I thought, such a simple little thing here. God was judging them because of their failure. Now this is his heavenly counsel now judging them for their failure to take care of the poor, the orphans, he says the afflicted, and the needy. And that afflicted, you know, could be the, the downers. Those are just having a bad time, depressed. They need some encouragement. And they weren't doing it. And I'm just awed at the way God looks at 
what I would call the little things that take place in our lives. And sometimes we just don't give a thought to them. And yet, his heavenly counsel was judged for their lack of attention to the poor and the needy and the orphans and so on. Judgment occurs again here because of our lack of attention to the needs of others. So when we take communion, though we do not have a fellowship meal this time, but we've done it before, and we will do it again, I hope the lesson for you and me, and I'm going to tell you right now, it was very convicting to me, of the importance that God places on love, harmony, unity, oneness of faith in the body of Christ. He expects us to represent Christ in every way. That's why he said back in chapter 10, whether therefore you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. Back in the late 1800s, there was a man that wrote a poem that I think was a little bit apropos for this. So, uh, I want to read it to you. It's called Others. And you might be familiar with it. Lord, help me to live from day to day in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. Help me in all the work I do to ever be sincere and true. And I know that all I do for you must needs be done for others. Let self be sacrificed, or excuse me, crucified and slain and buried deep, and all in vain may efforts be to rise again and less to live for others. Others, Lord, yes, others, let this my motto be. Help me to live for others that I may live like thee. I think he captured it very well in this little poem. He didn't talk about food here. He talks about prayer. He talks about uh, work, about crucifying self and so on. But he could just as easily have said it in the same vein that the Apostle Paul said it here in 1 Corinthians 11. Think about others. That's a strong, powerful message for this man. You know, when I had the thought, strange thought today, you know, I might just be preaching to myself. I may be the only guy that really needs this. But I'm going to tell you, I felt it. And I'm feeling it. And I hope you do too. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mercies and the great grace that you have bestowed upon such undeserving people. And I pray, Father, that we here in this church would be that fellowship of believers that you could look down upon with approval and grant your favor so that we might lift up the name of Christ because we look out for and take care of others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.